Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open it to the book of Psalms. If you're in need of a Bible tonight, uh, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll pass one to you so that you can follow along with us in our study. Uh, Last week, I finished leaving you with kind of a cliffhanger uh, moment as we are winding down and finishing the life of David. We saw David pass off the scene uh, in 1 Kings chapter 2 in our study last week, and uh, truly his life is is epic. He is heroic. Uh, David is an inspiration and a role model uh, to all that, that have lived ever since him. Um, the Bible tells us in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 28 of David, it says that he died in a good old age and full of days. And yet, interestingly, he died at the age of 70, which is, is kind of even young by today's standards. And certainly uh, for Bible days, people lived much longer. But uh, nevertheless, David uh, lived four lifetimes in those 70 years. And he really saturated it, impacted it. And so the Bible is not wrong by saying that he was uh, of a good old age and full of days uh, for certain. Well, um, last week I ended kind of by giving you the, 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 um, the hypothetical scenario of King David sitting down with Oprah Winfrey for kind of an an interview, for her to kind of talk to him, a primetime network exclusive, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We won't say Oprah because it's Oprah. We'll say Orpah because that was Ruth's sister, you know, and and you get the idea. So we'll just pretend that Ruth's sister was uh, a a famous network television personality, and um, she sat down with King David, and and I can just imagine what what that must have been like, you know, just to... uh, um, just if you could, if you could sit down with someone like David who lived the kind of life that he did. And, and more so what I'd like you to think about tonight, just as we get into this, is, is if you could sit down with David. If you could sit across the, the room, it was just you and him, and you had a one-on-one counseling session where uh, you could talk to him and ask questions, and someone who prophesied and who was filled with the Spirit of God and who lived such an epic life and who went such a far distance in the time that he had. And if you could talk to him and, and sit down with him. You know, I can imagine what it would be like. And so I, I kind of picture um, Oprah or Orpah sitting with David and, you know, it's finally that time and the whole nation is watching and everybody's there. And, and she just looks at him and she says, wow. She says, wow, King David, you know, you've, you've lived a fairy tale life. You were born in obscurity to an underprivileged family, the youngest of eight kids. You kind of show up out of nowhere. Your voice is barely changed. You're barely out of high school. And, and you slay Goliath, and you're thrust onto the national scene. Everybody knows who you are in just a moment. At the young age, you became the king's armor bearer right out of high school. And by the time you were in your early 20s, you became one of his top generals. And then out of his own jealousy, you were falsely accused, and you became a fugitive. And you were chased out of the city. But yet, nevertheless, your influence continued to grow, and you didn't give up. And you became the king of the entire nation at age 30 with a list of accomplishments that's way too long for us to really go over. And then aside from all the successes in that, then you were betrayed and maligned and misjudged and misunderstood and then exiled and then restored. And you never gave up through any of that. 
And you literally brought the nation to its apex. It's, it's greater today than it ever has been because of what God has done through you. We have a strong economy, a strong military. We have prosperity in every sector. And now as you're ready to go, you've prepared your son, Solomon, a man full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. You brought God to the center of the nation. You've prophesied to us and over us. We sing your songs in our synagogues and in the temple every weekend, every Sabbath. And you've inspired a nation and generations to come. And, and, and King David, as we sit here tonight in this one opportunity, I just have one question, one thing that I'm going to ask. And this one question, I'm going to ask it, and then I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to let you just answer the question. You just talk to us. So here's my question for you tonight, King David. We live in a challenging world, and we live in challenging times. And in light of all of that, what would you, in all of your experience and everything that you have been through, what would you say to a young man or a young woman in their late teens or early 20s that has no clue what they've been made for and what's going to happen in their future? We know that you've been there, that you can talk to that because, because it was your life. What would you say to the young adult who's trying to get on their feet and they feel stuck in the position that they're in? They feel like they've taken a wrong turn with their life and they just feel lost, like they're spinning in circles and they're kind of at a dead end. You've been there. You know what that's like. Watching their peers advance and succeed, but watching themselves go in circles. What would you say, King David, to the person who has a boss or a supervisor or a manager that hates their guts, that makes life miserable for them? That, that, that they just wish you were dead and they do everything they can to just trip you up and frustrate you and ruin your day. We know that you've been there, that you lived there for a long season. What would you say to someone who's in that position? What would you say to the young woman who feels like they married the wrong person, who, who, who feels inside that they're, they're facing a life linked to nothing but misery? What would you say to the person who started following God's plan? and had no idea what the preparation was going to cost, and now they're not so sure anymore, and they're thinking about going back. They, they don't know if they want to take the call. They don't know if it's worth it anymore. What would you say to that person or to the person who's trying, who's every day getting up and giving it their all, but they're suppressed, and it just seems that the system is rigged against them, and because of either their race or their gender or their position in life or the time in life that they live, they just can't break through, and it genuinely seems and is unfair for them. There's, they're disadvantaged people. What would you say to them? What would you say, David, to the person who's been established, who's made it, who's in their life, they're in their prime, but now they're on the cusp of having everything that they've achieved? Everything that they've worked for taken from them, losing it all in a moment because of something that's not their fault at all. David, you know what that's like because you've been there. What would you say, David? And what would you tell that person? What would you do and what should they do? And that's the question that's posed before King David at the end of his life. And so David sits and he reflects and he thinks about his early years and the things that he overcame and how God brought him out of the sheepfold and out of obscurity and out of confusion and put in his heart a purpose and filled him with his spirit. 
Coming into his mind would be the days when he ran from King Saul as a fugitive, wondering why God was allowing him to suffer such things and what he did to deserve this kind of what felt like disqualification and why he was now forsaken. And he would think about the days when things began to turn around and it looked like maybe there was hope again. And the days when finally his purpose came to be and he became the king over the nation. In the days of rejoicing as God exalted him and militarily and economically and educationally and in every way the nation thrived under his leadership and under the hand of God upon his life. And he would think about the days when Absalom, his own son, would rise up against him and try to take his throne and kill him. And what that meant and what it cost and the betrayal and the slander and the uncertainty and the pain of having to go through that later in life. And we'd think about the restoration and we'd think about the challenges and the battles and the losses and the setbacks and the shame and the victories and everything that he went through in his life. And he would sit back in that moment and reflect upon it all. And he would look at her and he would look at us and he would say, you know what? I have an answer for you. And so I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 37 because David's answer is recorded there because there he answers that question that is universally applicable to every life, every situation, every stage, no matter what has happened, is happening, or will happen, the message tonight is called WWDD, What Would David Do? And let's just pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you give counsel in every situation. We thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your hand is upon our lives securely, and that, Lord, you know perfectly the way that we take and what things are happening and where we're headed. And so in light of all of that, Lord, each of us tonight brings into this room a set of cares, concerns, and circumstances that you can speak to. And we ask, Father, that by your Spirit, you would inspire and anoint us, Lord, not just to know what you would say, but also to know what we must do. And so we ask you to bless this time that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 37. David would reply, and let's just read the first eight verses as we begin. David would say, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. But rather trust in the Lord and do good. So shall you dwell in the land and truly, verily, you shall be fed. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way, your path unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment, your sentence as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise for any reason to do evil. David begins and he, would say, he says to us, to you and I, he says, the first thing that I would say to any person in any situation where they are wondering or wandering or feeling lost or they're in a position where there's discomfort or preparation or suffering, the first thing, the first words out of my mouth would be, fret not thyself. It's King James language, but in the Hebrew, it literally means, do not let yourself become unsettled. 
or anxious. Do not, under any circumstances, allow yourself to become unsettled or anxious. It's interesting that Jesus would echo the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, in a 10-verse chunk of that three-chapter sermon, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, four times Jesus would say emphatically to his people, to take no anxious thought for our lives. What we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear, what we'll put on. He says, don't worry about those things. Don't take the anxious thought. In other words, the thoughts coming, don't take it. Fret not yourself. Don't worry about it. The apostle Paul would say the same thing in Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, where he would command emphatically and he would say, be anxious for nothing. Not for most things or for the small things, but be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard or keep, protect your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus who died for you. And David would, would say to you and I that if you are in a place where what's happening in your life is causing you to become anxious or fretted or unsettled, then mentally you are out of the will of God. You may not positionally be out of the will of God, but mentally you're out of the will of God and you need to be adjusted. And David would say that every mistake that I made and every regret that I carry within my life are the result of when I let anxiety steal my hope. And so my greatest regret But if they cannot attack me there, then they have absolutely no power over me at all. Fret not yourself. Then he says, because of evildoers. The word in the Hebrew literally means those who work wickedness or manipulate brokenness. That is, the people in this world that understand the fallen conditions that we're under and that have learned how to twist and manipulate those systems and things in order to control people and oppress people and overpower people. People that make an art of capitalizing on the fallenness of the world. And that could fall into many categories. It could be a system that's working evil that way. It could be an individual leader who's working that way. It could be a contractor who you hired to work on your house that is behaving that way. Or it could be a spouse who you agreed and pledged that you would be with them till death do us part. But they're working manipulatively to oppress and suppress you. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled because of these things. Nor, he says, let, let it become envious of the workers of iniquity. Literally, the word envious means um, to not be emotionally provoked. That's what the, the word literally means. Don't let your heart become emotionally provoked. And in iniquity, the word is, is better translated by injustice. He says, don't be emotionally provoked by injustice. Isn't it interesting that almost everything that is, is flashed across our eyes, our ears, and our mind right now, whether it's in, in, in regular media, social media, whether it's on the radio, every single thing that is put in front of us right now is specifically designed 
to emotionally provoke us in some way. And, and yet the Bible is telling us, don't let it happen. Guard your heart and your mind in such a way down that their time is coming and God will show himself stronger than those things and they will be cut down. Then he tells us in verses three through eight, seven things that we're to do instead. Okay, okay. if I'm not allowed to be anxious about the things that are going on in the world, and if I'm not to give my attention to things that cause my heart to become unsettled, what do I do instead? Because I got to hold on to something. I can't just walk around like the ostrich whose head is buried in the ground. So what do I do instead? He says, first of all, trust in the Lord. That's number one. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Trust in the Lord. The word trust literally means to lay the full weight of your dependence upon him. Not some of your weight. Don't lean on him partially or let him take the load when it's too heavy for you. But it says to trust in him. It means to trust in him with the full weight of your dependence. Another translation of the same word in the Hebrew language means to feel safe and careless, meaning to set yourself and your mind and your faith and your trust in God in such a way and to such a degree that no matter what's going on around you or what's happening to you, that you feel safe and careless because you know who's in control and who's holding you up. He says, second of all, to do good, trust in the Lord and do good. This is action. It means literally to work in excellence and to do what's better. In other words, whatever you have to do right now, whatever God has given you right now, just do it excellently with all of your heart. Do it with everything that you've got and you work what's better. Don't do what they're doing. Don't manipulate evil to, to, to bring yourself along, but you just do what you know is right. And he says that the promise attached to that is he says that so shall you dwell in the land and truly you shall be fed. Do you know what the word dwell means? I know we're doing a lot of words tonight, but you, you, know, you kind of have to if you want to understand what David is trying to say. Do you know what the word dwell means? It literally means settle. It's the opposite of unsettled or fret. In other words, if you put your trust in the Lord and put your hand to the plow and just do what's in front of you right now today, then what's going to happen is that there's going to be a settling that happens in your heart. It's what Paul said in Philippians chapter four, when he said to be anxious for nothing. He said, in all things by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God and the peace of God will rule in your hearts. You'll settle. And so you'll dwell, you'll settle. And then he says, in the land, the word land always implies in the Bible, the promised land. What land is David talking about? He's talking about the land of Israel. It was the land that God promised to them. And it represents the promised life that God gives. It represents all of the promises that God has given in the Bible. And he says that if you put yourself in that place where you trust in the Lord and set your eyes on what he's given you to do right now, that you're going to settle in that place and you're going to obtain the promises that he gives, just many of which we're going to uncover as we go through this psalm. And then he says, on top of that, he says, verily, which means faithfully, truly, without fail, you shall be fed. And the word fed means to be shepherded. That's the literal translation of that word to mean sh to be shepherded, which means that you're going to be led and taken care of. That's what shepherds do. They lead their sheep and they provide pasture and, and food for their sheep. And so God says, if you put your trust in me and you keep your hand to the plow and what I've given you right now, 
You're going to have peace in your heart, and you're going to be provided for, and I'm going to lead you through the times that you're in, no matter what those times are, no matter what stage of life that you're in. No matter what situation you're in, if you position yourself this way, you're going to be settled, you're going to be content, and you're going to be led. Then he gives one of the most amazing promises that's also a command in verse 4. Not only are we to trust and do good, but thirdly, he says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's an amazing promise. You think about what he just said. The word delight literally means to be happy about or to make sport of or to brag on the Lord. In other words, that it doesn't matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to brag internally about the fact that I'm following a God who says that I'm more than a conqueror through him that loved me. I'm following a God who says that he that spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now with him also freely give us all things? I'm following a God who says that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so I'm going to delight myself in the fact that his promise is on my life, his hand is on my life, and it doesn't matter what's going on around me or what's happening to me or what people are trying to do to undercut me because I'm following a God and I have the promise of a God who's greater and bigger than all of that in my life. And so I'm going to set my delight upon him. And the Bible says that the outcome of that is that he's going to give you the desires of your heart. It literally means in the original language that he's going to put upon you your requests and petitions. Just think about that. I'm going to say it again. He's going to put upon you your requests and petitions. In other words, God is going to put desires in your heart that you will then seek him for that he might fulfill those things. It's a surrendering to his will and letting your heart be conformed to what he wants for you in such a way that you want what he wants. And then when you're walking in that path, you get what you want. He says that I'm going to set desires upon you. Then he goes on to say, fourthly, in verse five, here's the next thing that you should do. He says, commit your way. Your way means your path. So to commit means that you're going to uh, let go of, you're going to roll something off of yourself and onto him. You're committing something to someone else. And what is it? He says, it's your path. What's your path? Your path is where you go in life. It's your direction. It's your future. It's your tomorrow. It's where you're going to put your foot down after you lift it up in front of you. It's your next step. And he's saying, give that completely to God. Commit your path unto the Lord. Trust also in him. Meaning that once you begin to do that, don't stop. Don't Walk and say, okay, God, I trust you. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to trust you and commit my path to you for a couple days. And if I like it, I'll keep doing it. But he says, no, no, once you start doing that, stay in that place where you just trust him completely. And I love this. This is one of the greatest sentences in the Bible. I love it. It says, and he shall bring what? Read it. It. He will bring it. You're going, What? What? What are you going to bring to pass? What's your it? Because if he says that his name is the I am, because he is whatever you need, then when he says it, it means that the it is whatever it needs to be. The it might be a promotion. The it might be deliverance from your enemies or a situation. 
The it might be an open door that you've been waiting for in your life. The it might be a relationship that you've been waiting on him for, trusting him for, believing him for, but seems delayed. It might be vindication because of someone who slandered you or some accusation that's been laid against you or some situation that you're in not that, that's not your fault at all, and yet you're bearing the shame of it and you're waiting for the vindication of it. It might be joy that you say, Lord Jesus, you said that you would give me joy unspeakable and full of glory, but I find myself in, in the sorrows of depression and I don't even know what joy means. It is whatever it is in your life. And the Bible says that if you commit your path unto him, I said, but this is way better than what I would have. So commit your way unto the Lord and then stay in that place. And then you'll find out what it is and you'll see it come to pass all at once. That's an amazing promise. And it says that he will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Now, what does that mean? Your righteousness literally is your rightness or you being in the right place, right with him, right, the right kind of person, having the right character, and then falling into your purpose. And he says that it will come like light. How does light come? Faithfully. Because every single day the sun rises and you never have to wonder if it's going to actually come to pass. You just enjoy it when it comes. And God says, listen, it's going to come. And he will bring forth your judgment or your sentence as the noonday. It comes. And then he says in verse 7, number 5, he says, rest in the Lord. Do you know what the word means literally in the Hebrew? It means to remain silent. To rest means to remain silent. Or let me say it in, 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 a, in a clearer way that translates a little better. Don't complain. That what situation you're in right now that you don't like, keep your lips sealed about it. Bear it before him and him alone, and don't complain about the situation that he has you in. I remember a situation in my life where I was complaining about something that God, a long season that God had me in. And I remember being in, in, a, in a place of complete isolation and misery and satanic oppression and depression and suicidal thoughts, and it was, it was awful. And I was working at that time in complete isolation, and the isolation just made it even worse. And I came to a breaking point where I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. And I called my boss, and I said, you at least have to give me someone else because I can't do this by myself any longer. And he said, yeah, 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 there'll be someone there. And I knew there wouldn't be. And so the next day, I went, and there was no one, and I said, that's it. And I said, Lord, can I go? <laughs> and I sat down. I remember sitting down in my tool bag, and, I, and I, I'm not like a big devotional reader, but I was kind of killing time and, and like kind of afraid to leave. You know that feeling? Like, I'm going to do it. And you're like, no, I'm not really good. I can't do it. Can I do it? You know, I have a family to feed. Can I really just go, you know? And I sat down and I opened up on, on my phone the devotional for that day. It was my utmost for his highest. It was August 10th. I'll never forget it. And I remember it said on that day, it said that we must be careful to defend God's reputation in the circumstances that he has us in. And not to complain about things that he's doing because we don't understand. And not to bring a, a, a reproach upon God's reputation. And then it said this, and it hit me like an arrow in the heart. It said that God puts us in the place where we will bring him the most glory. And sometimes we are completely incapable of judging where that might be. And I said to God with my voice that moment, I said, God, are you telling me that where I'm going to bring you the most glory today is in a cave by myself alone where I don't have contact with another human being? And he said, yes. 
get in there. <laughs> but I went in with joy that day. Because we're to rest in him. We're to trust in him. He was doing something that I couldn't see and couldn't understand that today I'm grateful for. I was becoming rich in things that I didn't even know existed. He says, rest in the Lord. Rest, be quiet, keep your mouth shut in the moment of it and don't complain. Wait patiently for him. And then he says it again, don't fret, don't become anxious, don't become unsettled. And then in verse eight, he says, sixthly, he says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Listen, when you get emotionally wrapped up in a, in a cause, in a situation, in a way where anger becomes the fruit and the byproduct emotionally of what you're looking at or thinking on, you're probably going down a wrong road. So cease from anger and forsake wrath and then fret not yourself again. He says it for the third time. Don't become anxious or unsettled in any wise to do evil. And that means to respond to evil with evil or to reject God to go run to evil because it's easier. Don't let the emotions of your heart turn you away from doing what you know God would want you to do. This is my original counsel, David would say to you. This is what you do when you're in that situation, whatever that situation is. And then David goes on. And in verse 9 through 15, he begins to give promises associated with this kind of faith and trust in God. This is the confidence of those who dwell in the land. Notice in verse 9, he says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked will not be. Yea, you'll diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just. That's just the way it is. And gnashes upon him with his teeth, hates his guts. The Lord will laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. But their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Okay, what does he say here? He says, first of all, listen, whatever circumstance or situation that you're in, understand this, is that evildoers, those that twist things for their own ends and manipulate darkness, he says, they will be cut off. They are not going to continue. They will not last. I've seen it. I know it. I understand it. It's God. It's his way. But those that wait upon him, those that put their trust in him, they're going to inherit what the evildoers cannot take with them when they go. That if you stay in the place where you are not cut off, when they fall, everything that they possess is going to fall to you. You're going to end up favored and blessed in, in, in the moment of it. And then he says that it will be a little while and you'll consider his place, but it will not be. In other words, not only is the evil person going to be removed from their position, but the entire landscape is going to be changed. It's not like, you know, the queen is going to be removed from the chessboard. No, God's going to just put his fist down on the whole thing, and the whole thing is just going to spill over on the floor, and everything's going to change. And you're going to be like, wait, what happened to, and it's gone. And isn't it interesting how that can happen? 
I mean, think about how much has changed just in the last two years. We never would have thought that, that things could change in the way they did. And God says, I'm able to change things the other way even more swiftly than that. I can change the landscape of things. And he does. You know, think about how, how it happens. Now, I remember growing up outside of Rochester and Kodak was everything. Everything, film and cameras, everything. Everybody worked for Kodak. It made, there would be no Rochester. You wouldn't know what it is if it wasn't for Kodak. And then here comes the digital camera. And in one day, in one day, here's the digital camera. Kodak is nothing. And Rochester's a ghost town. Just the whole landscape can change in a moment. I, I laughed out loud the other day. You ever drive down, I, I, mean, I know someone here is going to get angry at me for saying this. You ever drive down the road and you see someone just put in one of those invisible fences? I don't know how much that costs, but I can't imagine it's cheap to have somebody dig a trench around your whole yard and put in an invisible fence for your dog. Now they just have a GPS collar. You just put the, the collar on your dog, you go on the computer and you draw the line, and, and if the dog crosses the line, it zaps him. All of a sudden, the guy who spent 10 grand putting an invisible fence around his yard is going like, eh. the whole landscape changed in one minute. One tiny invention and something is completely obsolete. I heard a thing on the radio yesterday that employers... They could care less if you went to college now. If you'll work, come. Well, you'll figure it out. You could fake it till you make it. We don't care. The whole thing changed in a day. One pandemic and everything changed. You can sit diligently consider the, I can't get into a college. You don't need one. It just changed. David says, I've seen that happen in my life over and over and over and over again, that you fret and you worry and you fear about this, and then some little adjustment happens, and God just goes, no, that's not going to go that way. I want it to go this way, and it changes. He says in, in verse 11 that the meek will inherit the earth. That's something that Jesus said, isn't it? Isn't that one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word literally means the humble, the lowly, and the oppressed. That means the people that really have no power to even help themselves, those are the people that are going to come forward, and they're the ones that are going to inherit. And not only that, but he says that they're going to have an abundance of peace. Verse 12 through 15 describes the continual contention between the wicked and the just. He says that the wicked plot, and they hate, and they conspire against people that do what's right. But I love this because the Bible says that God's going to laugh at them. No matter how smart or how rich or how powerful they think they are, they're not more powerful than God. And God laughs at them. And notice what God says. He says, first of all, he says that their bows will be broken. Did you see that in uh, verse 14? Watch this. He says that the wicked have drawn out their sword. They have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy to slay such as be of upright conversation. When we get to verse 17 in a minute, he's going to call it their arms, the things that hold them up. Do you know what he's talking about when he talks about their bows and their arms? He's talking about their devices. He's talking about their strategies. He's talking about the things that they've put in place to try to undo what you are living for and, and living after and desiring for your life. And it's true that the wicked have many devices, don't they? I mean, think about the bows of the wicked right now, the instruments that they've created to try to cast down what's right. I believe that education has become a bow in the hand of the enemy. You think about CRT and Common Core and gender neutrality 
and the things that are being pumped into the minds of young people these days, those are devices of the wicked that serve a purpose to try to turn them from the things of God. Economically, there are devices. Quantitative easing is a device of the evil one. Pumping of money into a system, freely giving it out to people. Universal basic income, incentivizing people to not work and do nothing. That's a device. That's something of the enemy. Forced vaccinations and mandates. These are devices. Things that uh, an evil system is using for the sake of casting down the innocent and the righteous. But you know, it's amazing that God says that their bows are going to be broken. And that even now we're beginning to see that their things are unraveling. Even now, even right now, the things, their devices, their bows are, are falling out of their hands. They're breaking. Notice in verse 16, he gives more perspective and more promises. He says, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. If you have a little and you have Jesus, because that's what righteousness means. If you have Jesus, you have righteousness. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have righteousness. So if you have a little bit and Jesus then you're richer than the person that seems to have a lot. And there's two reasons for that, <laughs> okay? Uh, number one is because if you have Jesus, you have peace. And you have sleep. And you have health. And you have freedom. And you have vision. I don't know if, if I know that, I don't think until I hit the age of 30, I ever didn't sleep a solid night. But I'm not 30 anymore. And I've had some things that have kept me up all night long because my mind won't. And I have learned that there is nothing more valuable than sleep. That if you can lay your head upon the pillow and you can rest because you're at ease over who's in control of all things, you are richer than the person that has all the money in the world and can't sleep because they don't know what's going to happen to it or because of the, the, the oppression of the guilt of their own conscience. The second reason why you're richer than the rich, if you have uh, Jesus, he tells us in verse 17, he says, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Listen, the devices, the money, the things that the rich are using to hold themselves up, it says that those things are going to be broken. They're not going to sustain. And, and whoever's being held by those things is going to fall. But the Bible says that we're held up by the arms of God and those cannot fall. The eternal God is your refuge, says Moses, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That when you make the Lord your refuge, you cannot fall because his devices cannot fail. He's strong. He's our strong God. He says, the Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance will be forever. Uh, interesting, the word days there in verse 18, when it says that the Lord knows the days of the upright, the word in the Hebrew is yom. And it's translated yesterday, today, and tomorrow, okay? So the yesterday of your life, the today of your life, and the tomorrow of your life are known by God. It's also translated in the Bible, the word yom, it's also translated chronicles. What's that? That's your story. It means that God already knows the entirety of your story from the beginning to the end. It's already been written. It's already laid out before him. And it says that he knows your chronicles. And it also means, it's also translated daily. Do you know what daily is? That's right now. That's today. It means the things that you're going through in this moment, the Lord knows. Which means this, that the path 
of your life, the entire span of your life, and even this moment in your life, that those things are known and held by God. And it says in verse 18 at the end that their inheritance shall be forever, which means that what he's building in your life in the midst of the yesterday, today, and what's to come, and even right now, that he's doing it for something that will be eternal because he says that your inheritance will be forever. Meaning that what he's doing in your life stretches way beyond this life. I had a friend a while back that was going through a situation where he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to keep his job. This was pre all of the chaos that we're in now. It was a totally different situation. But he was kind of stressing about it because he was raising a family and he was the sole provider and he didn't know what was going to happen. And as I, and I know this guy and he's, he's so competent and so gifted and so in, industrious and just, uh, just there, there was no question in my mind, just knowing him that, that he was going to be fine. You know, it's one of those things where you, you know, you miss a day and then you're back right on your feet again. And I just knew it. And, and so I'm listening to him and I'm kind of smiling and I knew he, he was struggling, but I, I remember just saying to him and I just felt the spirit of God uh, in it when I was saying it to him, as I said, but listen, I said, listen, what you have right now, is because of what's in you, not because of what's on you. In other words, the position that you have and the life that you have and, 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 and the person that you are and, and what all of it is, the whole of it, is because of what God's put inside of you and what's growing up inside of you. you you're, the abundance of your life is not because of your present situation. Well, I just luckily got this position. I luckily fell into this job. I luckily have... No, no, that's, that's on you. That's just like clothes. It comes and goes. But what's in you, that's what makes you valuable. And so what's in you is going to last, okay? It's what you have in you is what's valuable, not what's on you. And what's on you is because of what's in you. And that's what David is trying to say here. He's saying, listen, God's doing things in your life right now that you can't see, but it's way bigger in its scope than what you think it is because you think it's just right now. But your inheritance will be forever, So this is just one little part in what he's building eternally and you keep it forever. Therefore, verse 19, they shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine, they will be satisfied. Did you know that these are evil times that we're living in? And yet the promise of God is that you will be sustained and you will be satisfied in famine. Then he says in verse 20, he says, but the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, shall they consume away. The wicked borrows and pays not again, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. And an interesting picture, isn't it? He says that the wicked borrows and pays not again. Now, this has nothing to do with the banking system, okay? It, it's metaphorical about a lifespan, Okay. Everything that you and I obtain and enjoy in our lives is borrowed. Do you know that? Okay, if you have money, it's borrowed money because you know what? When you die, you leave it behind, you pay it back, you don't get to take it with you. Everything that you possess is borrowed. And essentially what he's saying is that the attitude of the wicked is that they just consume, they devour everything that they can and they obtain it to themselves thinking that it's theirs and they never give anything back. There's no flowing through their life. It's all about them. That's how you mark the wicked person is that everything is just all about them. But he says that the righteous 
In contrast, they show mercy, that means compassion, and they give. They have flow in their life. They devour, they also disperse. And you know what happens to people that devour and disperse? They grow and they become healthy. All right? A tree that only gives, takes and never gives, the tree will die. A sea, like the Dead Sea, that only takes but never gives, it dies. But that which receives and becomes a channel and a vessel through which resources can flow, that will thrive and prosper. And that's something that God puts into the attitude of the righteous. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. Now, more promises. I love this. Verse 23. He says, the steps of a good man. And notice that that word good, it might not show it on the screen, but if you look at it in the Bible, the word good is in italics, which means it's not there in the original language. It should read, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. What does that mean? It means that even the steps that you take that you think that are the result of your choices, your decisions, and your plans, that even those steps are being ordered by the Lord. He is so involved in what's going on in your life that even those little things that you think, I don't want to make the wrong call here. I don't want to, what am I going to do? The little thing. God says, I'm in it. I'm in those things. I'm right in the middle of your steps right now. David would say in 2 Samuel 22, verse 37, reflecting on his own life, he would say that he enlarged my steps under me. That even in moments where I wasn't sure if I was making the right move, God made it so that it was the right move, even if I'm not sure even to this day if it was the right move. He enlarged my steps under me. And he says, though they fall, they shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And David says, I want to tell you this as well, that I have been young and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. That there is a thing that God does for his people that he continually supplies. And when it seems like they are going to utterly empty out and there will be nothing left, it is at that moment that somehow God comes through and he provides. And there's this other thing that I've seen, says David, in my 70 years walking with God. Is that I have seen that there is some blessing that God puts upon the offspring of the righteous. It is supernatural. And I've seen it and you've seen it too. I remember being in high school and I knew who the Christian kids were who were brought up in Christian homes. And I was always amazed at how God would open doors of opportunity and put favor upon those kids, even if they weren't the best kids. Because he says that he's going to bless the offspring of the righteous. He is ever merciful and lends and his seed is blessed. Now, therefore, verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of judgment. God gives his word. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. But the Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. So he, he lays out the finality of these promises by saying essentially that God is just and God is fair. He doesn't forsake his people. You do have an inheritance. He's the one that gives wisdom and discernment for you to use. And that his word is your guide and the sure place for your foot. But know that you're being watched. 
and that the evil plots against the just, but God will sustain you in it. Then in verse 34 to the end, he gives the conclusion of the matter. By the way, Oprah left the room a long time ago because David was talking about God and all that, and that's intolerant, and he's, you know, she canceled David. So he's just there now. It's just him just talking, and now he concludes verse 34. He says, wait on the Lord and keep his way. Stay in his path and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked, says David, in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Now, what's the idea behind a green bay tree? It's a tree that's planted by a healthy water source in good soil. And you see that tree just flourishing and prospering and growing and spreading. And it just seems like it's so strong and nothing can take it out. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stand in its way. And David says, I have seen the wicked like a green bay tree, where it just seemed like the train was rolling way too fast. The momentum was way too great and that it was way too late to try to do anything about it at all. I have seen it in my life, David says. And yet, verse 36, he passed away and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. I've seen it turn around quickly. Mark the perfect man. That just means mature and upright. And behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord He is their strength in the time of trouble. Lean on him and the Lord will help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and he will save them because they trust in him. Put your trust in the Lord. So so David, what would you say? What would you say to the person in whatever stage of life they're in, whatever it is that they're facing, whatever conflict they're in, what's your counsel to them, knowing what you know and seeing what you've seen and doing what you've done? And David would say, trust in the Lord, commit your whole life to him, stay in his path. Stay right there in the place that that he has for you. Commit your whole life to God. Trust him for your salvation and then trust him in your salvation. Don't waver in it. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you're here in this place tonight and you're trying to navigate through all of this without Jesus, I've got good news for you. The Bible says that to as many as call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says that to all that put their trust and faith in him, to them gives he the right to become the sons of God, even to those that believe in his name. If you will roll your faith and trust into the Lord Jesus and allow him to wash you in the forgiveness of your sins and to receive what he did for you on his cross and then commit your life completely to him, then it doesn't matter where you are right now or how you got there. His GPS system just says recalculating and he will bring you right into the place where you're falling right into the promises that he gives. And David would say, put your trust in him. Secondly, David would say, rest, wait, and trust. Don't let yourself become unsettled because of the things that are going on. And thirdly, David would say, keep going. Just keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't turn back. Don't turn aside. Now, we we heard David's counsel. And, you know, there's something about it that's a little bit unsettling and a little bit odd. 
okay? Because basically, David is, is kind of just saying, don't worry, be happy, right? Like he's saying like, eh, it looks bad, things are bad, you're worried about your life, you got someone that hates your guts, there's a thousand arrows pointing at you right now. You're in danger of losing your house and your bank account and everything else. And he's like, don't worry about it. And there's something about it. You say, is that really good advice? Like, is that good counsel? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, David's counsel right here is untraceable and it's uncontrollable. Meaning that, that you can't like say, I'm going to do what David says right now. And this is what's going to happen and how it's all going to work out. Because you can't figure out how it's all going to work out. Well, what are you going to do right now in the situation here? I'm going to trust God. Well, what's going to happen then? I don't know. I'm going to rest in him and wait patiently for him to bring the outcome. Well, what, what happens if you rest yourself right into oblivion? Like that's really bad counsel. Don't you want to do something that, I mean, take like, pick yourself up from the bootstraps, like do something about your situation. Control it. No, no, you can't control it because there's pathways in the sea and you can't see it. And any worldly advisor, any worldly counselor that listens to the advice of David that he would give to people would say, this is bad advice. That's not good advice. Just trust in the Lord, wait on him. Don't let yourself become anxious. See how everything works out. That's bad advice. Don't follow his advice. But I want you to think about who's saying it because the strength and the validity of any counsel stands first of all in the wisdom that it contains, but second of all in the source from which it comes. And who is the person that's saying these things? This is King David. This is the one who through his whole life saw God lift him up, move him forward, save him out of distresses, provide for him in necessities, deliver him from his enemies, continue to elevate and prosper and cause him to thrive in the middle of all that was going on in his life. And now he comes to the end of it, and as he reflects on it all, he says, you know how you do it? Just trust him. Put your faith in him. Continue to walk in his ways. Set your eyes upon what he says and upon the prize of eternal life. Believe what he says about you. Receive what he's given to you, and just continue walking in it and watch how you get there. And I have lived that out every day of my life. And by the firsthand testimony of what I've done, and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who has put these words in my mouth, I am saying to the people of God emphatically that this works. That universally, no matter where you are, what stage of life you're in, what you're going through right now, or how bad things look in the world, that if you will put your trust in God and continue doing what's in front of you and put your delight in Him and rest completely on Him and stay in that place and don't move to it to the left or the right, and don't become emotionally involved in things and make decisions irrationally because of things that you're feeling or thinking. But you keep your trust in the one who says, I know what I'm doing from the beginning all the way to the end. And I know how to protect my people. And I know how to deliver the godly out of tribulation. And I never fail in my purpose and my cause. And I know how to renew your youth like the eagle. And I know how to provide for you in times of famine. And I know how to heal you from all your diseases. And I know how to keep every promise and make it yes and amen in your life. And I never fail. And it's universal in every life. And if you and I would put our trust in him and lay it there in that place, then we will see, as David says, the salvation of the Lord to all who put their trust in him. 
May the Spirit speak and may the church have ears to hear what the Spirit said. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your strength. We believe in your sovereignty. And right now, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, even as we sing this song, you would make adjustments in our thinking, adjustments in our focus, adjustments in our vision, that you would renew and revive our hope, that you would cause us to place our full trust in you, that we would believe on you, not just for our salvation, but in our salvation, and that we would be fed and led in the days that we're in. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.